Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to What I Wish I'd Known. Please be advised that in this episode, there are discussions of topics that some listeners may find upsetting. Hello and welcome to What I Wish I'd Known, in association with Speakers for Schools, the youth social mobility charity that provides inspirational speakers and work experience opportunities. I'm Alice Thompson. And I'm Rachel Sylvester. And in this podcast, we talk to extraordinary people who've lived astonishing lives, brushed with displacement, disease, financial ruin, abandonment, bereavement. And not only have they survived, but thrived. Loss and adversity are a part of life, but an imperfect past isn't always an indicator of what's to come. But why is it that often the people with the hardest beginnings in life become the most successful adults? And is there something to learn from these people who perhaps have the strongest sense of what matters most? In this series, we'll be speaking to a collection of remarkable individuals on how they achieved success in the face of adversity. And we'll be reflecting on some of our greatest interviews to date with new thoughts and revelations. Welcome to What I Wish I'd Known. In this episode, we're taking a listen back to an interview which we're very fond of with world-renowned poet Lem Sisse. Lem's later life has been showered with accolades and success. At 21 years old, he released his first book of poetry and since then, he's been granted artist-in-residence at London's Southbank Centre. He was the official poet of London's 2012 Olympics. He's been a Booker Prize judge And in 2021, he was appointed an OBE for services to literature and charity. He was quoted on receiving the award saying, I'm honoured if you'd gone to my 17-year-old self and said, in 2021, the Queen's going to give you an honour, I would have said, no way. So it's worth believing. It's astonishing to reflect on Lem's success in adulthood when we know the trials and tribulations he went through as a child. Stolen from his birth mother and rejected by his adopted parents. Lem endured years of mistreatment with the UK care system. What do you think struck you most, Rachel, from the interview? This is one of the interviews we've done over the years that stuck with me most and upset me most at the time, actually. I just remember finding it absolutely heartbreaking, the idea that adoptive parents would give you away and reject you for a second time. He describes really painfully being driven away from his family house, watching his mother, you know, absolutely no interest in him. Then he actually went back to the house where he'd been brought up and looked at it and watched it from across the park. And nobody came out to talk to him. Nobody showed him any love. Just that sense of double rejection is absolutely awful. What I couldn't bear, I think, was that sense that he was given another name. So he was actually given the name Norman, which was the name of his social worker. And it's sort of astonishing arrogance of the social worker not to keep his original name, because his name is actually Lem, which means why, which is much more evocative. And and I think, you know, the, the fact that the mother had no say at all over what happened to her son, and then even worse, his second name was then Greenwood, which was the name of his adoptive parents. And he then tattooed 
NG on his arm, which feels just awful that you have the wrong name on you for the rest of your life. So it was so symbolic of his identity effectively being stolen from him. And he talks about how poetry becomes a way of sort of re-establishing himself and proving who he is. Mm. Well, he does that wonderful quote when he says that poetry is evidence I was alive, that he almost had to put something on paper because no one had. And I think the most extraordinary thing is he went through endless foster homes and care homes and and you know he was pushed from place to place and yet he carried on writing and he produced his first poetry book when he was just 21 which seems insane now to think about it and so many of the people we've interviewed who are incredibly creative have had some kind of painful childhood it's almost as if that's driven and forged this huge creativity in them i i remember my brother racing me from school into the house and I I beat him and he ran to my mum and he said I beat him didn't I tell him I beat him and he hugged her because he was really he was really emotional weepy because he'd been beaten and she looked at me and said yes you did mm. and it was her look at me that made me feel like something cracked in the ground beneath me and I did not know what it was. Lem had an incredibly turbulent childhood, tainted with rejection. And of course, it wasn't just the care system which he fought against. But as he grew up, he was met with more and more racial injustice. As a child, he was given the nickname Chalky White, which was almost affectionate, but also deeply racist. And as he got older, he reflects on how he learned to navigate life in his adolescence as a black man in a world which was, and in many ways still is, deeply rooted in prejudice. It seems like Lem has always remained even-tempered despite the hardship he's faced. So I remember once my foster mum got in the car to try and find this boy who'd called me the N-word, you know. She was dramatically angry. Didn't need drama. Doesn't need drama. He needs clear-headed an answer. Unfortunately, my foster parents would do what I think most parents would do of any colour, which, you know, sticks and stones will break your bones, but names will never harm you. Well, actually, I was having sticks and stones thrown at me and mm. physically beaten mm. and coming home with black eyes and what have you. When speaking to them, you get this real sense of calm despite the anguish he's experienced in life, an extraordinary intelligence and emotional intuitiveness. And I think even at 21 years old, when he tracked down his birth mother and he met her for the first time, he didn't hold any anger towards her, but a yearning to understand her perspective. And also, he wanted to give her space for her pain and and for the family to come to terms with the fact that they had you know, another member, really. It's as if that name, Lem, Y, is the thing that's carried with him throughout his life. He's trying to find his roots, trying to find his way back to a sense of family. So I hugged her at the, at the door, and as we walked up the pathway to the house, she said, can we not talk about this? I've got a visitor staying over. So within a minute of meeting her, I couldn't talk to her. and. Again, it's down to the practical nature of family and yeah. difficulty and things are not how you want them to be. Mm. I come back to her, I come back to her as the big I am almost, you know, tell me about how I was conceived. What child says that to their parents? Mm. I'm probably a reminder of the worst memory that she's ever had. 
In this episode of What I Wish I'd Known, award-winning poet Lem Sisse tells us his story of his early life littered with abandonment, rejection, prejudice, and overcoming that to become known as one of Britain's most renowned poets and literary figures. We met with Lem in a coffee shop in Hackney. The year is 2020. Lem reflects on his writing during lockdown and how news events like the pandemic have influenced his work. So have you been writing lots in lockdown, or is it different? No, I'm judging feel... the Booker Prize. Oh, so you have to read. I'm reading okay. day and night. Yeah. How many books have you got? I've read 141. I've got 151 oh, to read, plus Collins. Do you find, though, when you're writing that a, a sort of news event like a pandemic is good inspiration, or is it? does it sort of take you too far away from emotion? It can crowd you when you feel like there's a pressure to write about something because people say it is. Mm. I like the idea that um, a big event may happen, but it's a very, very small thing that you write about. Okay. There's an extraordinary verse at the start of your memoir, which is just shows your resilience, I think. Could you read it? Yes. I am the bull in the china shop with all my strength and will. As a storm smashed the teacups, I stood still. We want to take you back to your childhood and actually the first 17 years of your life. Um, You were called Norman Greenwood after the social worker who took you into care and the foster family who took you into their home. What was your earliest memory? Oh, gosh. My earliest memory... Oh, I've got so many now. I don't know which was the earliest, but going to church. It would have been about four or five, maybe. I remember going to my grandma's house and my granddad's. Granddad you were fostered Monroe. when you were very young by a religious family, weren't you? Yeah, I was. I mean, my mum came to this country, to England, from Ethiopia. And... Um, Ethiopia was expanding and it was part of that expansion that the younger generation would go around the world and study and then bring back their skills. It's part of um, Haile Selassie's uh, idea. He was the emperor at the time. My mum was that generation. And Ethiopia is a very proud place. It it was never colonised. It was occupied by Italy for five years. And this was the 1960s. My mum had a beehive and the whole world ahead of her. She went to boarding school, um, taught by a a Swedish headmaster who then linked her from that school, that boarding school, to the school in England in Newbury. And she came over in 1967 and she was pregnant. And I was conceived on the flight over, which had to change in Greece. In Athens, yes, yes, (laughs) and with a little thought, I could find the hotel that I was conceived in. Right, but I haven't done that. (laughs) Um, So you could be Greek as well if you wanted to. Well, in my uh, memoir, I show you the file that it says he could be of Greek. Mm. His father is of Greek origin. Mm. Of course, he wasn't. It's just that my mother had said something happened in Greece, which resulted in her being pregnant in England. 
So what happened? She was taken to a mother and baby unit, wasn't she? That's right, yeah. In England, in the uh, late 60s, there were mother and baby homes all over the country, uh, primarily for women who were pregnant without a husband, as if there was some sort of threat to sort of child and state. Yeah. And also miles away from where she was, wasn't it? Wasn't it in the north of England? Rather she went from leafy Newbury uh, in Berkshire to the cold, dark north of England. She went from a school which had students who were from all over the world to a place where the, she was the only Ethiopian uh, in the room. She was isolated, she was cold, she was amongst people who were not connected to her school, and she was placed in a mother and baby home, and the primary purpose of the home which was run by nuns, was to get her to sign the adoption papers. So do you think she was pressurised to give you away? So she had no intention of having me adopted. She wanted me fostered while she studied, and then she would take me back to Ethiopia. And that would have been quite easy for her, wouldn't it? Yeah, I mean, my my family, they're a big family. Mm. So if you imagine that this was an English student who went to an international school, uh, and who had the same experience when they went abroad. That's basically what my mother's class was and my mother's um, situation. Um, so she went back to Ethiopia because her father was dying. She stayed in touch with the social worker. The social worker, it's important to know, had no intention of giving me back to her. She's incredible, actually. No. He gave me to foster parents. Mm. And he called you after himself, didn't he? So you have to look for evidence as to why I would not believe the social worker was doing this in my mother's best interest or mine. Mm. At the same time that he named me after himself, Norman, he was writing to my mother or responding to my mother's letters using the name Lem. Right. So, so there you have the evidence that there is a lie happening there. Mm. And so the question you would ask then is, why does that lie mm. happen? Mm. Also, it's almost a godlike complex to call a baby after yourself who's already been christened. It would have been easy to believe the story. Oh, this poor woman came to England and her child was fostered because obviously she couldn't look after him. She didn't have the money. She didn't have the emotional capacity, etc. That narrative is very easy to believe until you look at the actual mm. details of the facts. My birth certificate, when I was 18 years of age, had my name on it. The letters from my mother and to the social worker and from the social worker to my mother, he calls me Lem and he doesn't tell her that he's changed my name. He had no intention of me giving me back to her. What was your family life like, the Greenwoods? What was it like when you were growing up? It was sort of age of clangers and crackerjack and spangles and fabs, wasn't it? Arctic That's roll. It. <laughs> Arctic roll. Oh my gosh. Um, Arctic roll, uh, fish fingers, um, laughter, fights with my brother. So, was it actually quite fun when you were little? Did you enjoy I your loved family? my childhood. Did you? Oh my God, are you kidding me? I was like, I was like, I was very, very happy child. I, the world, woke up when I woke up. It slept when I slept. <laughs> when I opened the windows of my bedroom, like that's when colour happens in the world. And it would colour itself in right in front of me and be like, okay, so we're waiting for you. 
and then I would walk to school and like flowers would grow as I walked past <laughs> and I'd be like, yes, of course you would. Yeah, it was a great childhood. It's really nice to speak about because um, it's recently that I've come to know that it was a wonderful childhood, a wonderful first 10 years. And did you feel um, happily part of the family? Did you? Yeah. Did you feel very loved? I guess I did, yeah, because I felt secure. So I had my, you know, yeah, I had all my family and my town and my village and my church and my school. And life was exciting. It was, it was, it was good to wake up. Were you very close to your siblings as well? I mean, I was the oldest and the most extrovert. So they were, they were part of me, but I had a, the world was waiting for me. I had stuff to do. You know, I knew that my brother was an introvert and I had great empathy for him. And I would stick up for him and he would not want me to. Um, my sister, Sarah, was my sister and she was younger. And Did you feel different because you were black and they were white or was it not an issue? Well, what I knew is that they were my family. Yeah. So I was different. And I did get racism and people did spit at me and they did beat me up and they did, my friends used to, if we all fell out, then the N-word would come out and then the coon word and all of these, this stuff that I was like, what the heck is going on? And, and did would, your siblings and then your parents look after you? Did they protect you? Or? I would come home and say to my mum, you know, what, this, this thing that, like, I can't get past it, like, Whenever anything happens, this word comes out and I, I, don't, I don't have the language to answer it. I don't understand what's happening. So I remember once my foster mum got in the car and drove around the town to try and find this boy who'd called me the N-word, you know. She was dramatically angry. Didn't need drama. It doesn't need drama. It needs clear-headed an answer. Unfortunately... My foster parents would do what I think most parents would do of any colour, which, you know, sticks and stones will break your bones, but names will never harm you. Well, actually, I was having sticks and stones thrown at me and mm. physically beaten and coming home with black eyes and what have you. Um, you know, they would often say, you know, love is colourblind, turn the other cheek. Um... Do you think maybe the problem was you started to outshine the other children in the family? This is something that happens in families, is the competitive nature of one child to another. It's part of the nature of families. You know, anybody who's got a sister or a brother will feel possibly that their mother loved one more than the other or the father loved one more than the other. And this is part of the, the to-ing and fro-ing of family. Uh, and it lasts a lifetime. Uh, so can the grudge can last a lifetime and so can the resolution last, last a lifetime. You know, this, this um, struggle is part of what makes a family. What happened in my family is that I became the enemy within because my mother felt that I was 
suppressing my brother with my extrovert nature. If you hadn't been fostered by her, and you, she wouldn't have felt that as much, don't you think? I mean, it is extraordinary. It's almost that she had to protect her own in the end. Is that how you felt? So, so then we have to... So then it's worth looking at what would it be like for one of your own children to suddenly realise that he is the enemy within mm. for the sole reason that he's being who you've, you've allowed him to be. Like, I, I remember my brother racing me from school into the house. Got a laburnum tree in the garden, little postage stamp garden, little semi-detached house. And obviously I'm going to beat him. I'm a year older than him. <laughs> and he's just never... My brother was never going to beat me at anything when it came down to physicality. Could now. And I raced home and I, I beat him. And he ran to my mum and he said, I beat him, didn't I? Tell him I beat him. And he hugged her because he was really, he was really emotional, weepy because he'd been beaten. And she looked at me and said, "Yes, you did." Mm. And it was her look at me that made me feel like something cracked in the ground beneath me, and I did not know what it was. Now, all of these things are the stuff of normal families, I believe. Mothers, unfortunately, will side with one child over the other, and so will fathers at certain points. Go figure, that's life. And often you know, the weaker ones. Yes. <laughs> but the cruel, well, the cruelest thing is, is that my mother didn't just make that projection upon me that I was getting in the way of my brother's development. She cut me off from the entire family mm. and said, we'll never speak to you again. Now... That is not something that you would wish on your own worst enemy mm. at, at, at 12 years of age. And that's astonishing, isn't it? I can't think of another example where that's happened. So put, this into, put all of this other stuff into the mix then, you know, postnatal depression. Um, she'd just had a baby. She'd had a baby called Helen and she'd suffered through a life from depression. Depression can have a very debilitating effect, not only on the person who I empathise with, but on everybody around them, the physical house can feel it. I think these dysfunctions that are in my family are in pretty much all families, or many families, not all families. But what happened in your case? When you were 12, there was a crunch moment, wasn't there? There was. 12 years of age, I'm going on to adolescence. And I'm from a family in our street that's known to be the strict, the strict family. A lower middle class, really wanting to go up. And um, it, I was dragging the whole house down. Right. I was the first adolescent. I Naughty. remember Naughty. I realised that when I was 19. Yeah. I was like, I was their first adolescent. Mm. So I was starting to smoke. I was staying out late at night and I was taking biscuits from the tin without saying please and thank you. But that's right? quite normal, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, no, 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 you know that now. <laughs> you know that now. So what we've got is this pressure cooker that's happening inside the family. I've got to say, Damien, the film about the omen, was on at the time. 
And did you feel you were like Damien? Oh, I didn't. Mm. But they were a very religious family. So what was working inside of me, and I was told this, was the devil. Right. Right? The devil's a real thing. It's not, let's not pretend it's not. That's what they, I was taught. So evil is a very real thing in the Baptist church. It's not a, it's almost not an abstract concept. It's a very real thing and it works inside and around us. And uh, so these things that I was doing inside the family, they were not adolescents. They were the workings of the devil. Right. Sorry, it's implicit mm. that you were a threat to our family. Yeah. When we say we didn't know who your daddy was. You're listening to What I Wish I'd Known in association with Speakers for Schools with Rachel Sylvester and me, Alice Thompson. There'll be more from us just after this. Welcome back to What I Wish I'd Known in association with Speakers for Schools with Rachel Sylvester and Alice Thompson and our guest on this episode, Lem Sissi. So can you remember the day you were taken away? I can remember the, 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 the walk to the car and I can remember not being, my, my mum not hugging me at the door. And did you hug her? Yes. But she didn't hug me back. That's incredible. Yeah. Do you think she felt guilty? Oh, God, yeah. I mean, that's mm. part of the Baptist faith. So she felt she'd let oh, you down? Oh, my God. No, yes, of course they let this poor child down, but he wanted to leave us. And if he wants to leave say? us, he's... He, mm. Not only did they say that mm. to me, we're putting you in care because you want to leave us because you don't love us, but they told the rest of the family, and that's what the rest of the family believed, and that's why nobody ever contacted me. Mm. This isn't just my mum and dad. This is my aunts, my uncles, my cousins, my grandma, my granddads, my my um, best friends. Like, like nobody contacted me. So you lost contact with absolutely everyone. Emotional Hiroshima, wipeout. So you were. I used to. I used, well. to, I used to run away. Age. I used to run away from the children's home. I used to run away from the children's home and sit in the flower park, looking at the house, like watching the bay windows. I used to sit in the park. I used to run away from the children and sit in that park and watch, watch that house. Desperate like, to go home. I couldn't understand how I could not be allowed in, into it. Even when I did go back, they let me come back to them one, for one day. They, they sat me in the front room like I was a visitor. They made sure that my sisters and brothers weren't there. They were writing a story with their own family that, that I contradicted by being alive. But it's incredible that a family who's brought a child up as their own effectively at the age of 12 just rejects that child. It seems so cruel. I found it... It's almost unbelievable. You must. How did you feel as you left? It was unimaginable to mm. me. So I couldn't imagine that they wouldn't take me back. Yeah. That it wasn't just a break. But your siblings must have felt appalling that you'd left them in the same way. Yeah. Well, the the, the story that they know is that I'd rejected their mum mm. and dad, and mm. not only that, but but um, you know, families are quite feral things. You know, we like to think they're not, but actually, they will close 
ranks very, very quickly when they feel like their core is being threatened, their core story. And what was the first children's home like? It's great. I mean, it's like, it's like a, 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 like it was a, it was a mansion on Orchard Lane. It was called Woodfields. Across the road from it was a, a pond slash lake called Lucky Hollow. <laughs> Just up the it's road. It's like a fairy tale. Mm. Did Dude. you make friends as well? It was like a fairy tale, and we did make friends. And the one rule of all friendships in the children's home was any one of us can go at any minute, so let's not get too close. Mm. That was the one rule. What were the adults like? Was there any love, or was it just very functional? No, there was was definitely not love. Isn't it funny that the one thing that the child in care needs Mm. is the one thing that the care system then felt it was absolutely impossible to give. Mm. So did no one hug you at all? There were no hugs. I mean, basically, lockdown and control. Mm. Was there cruelty? There was emotional cruelty. There was physical abuse. So the staff, some, and, and by the way, you could have five staff. If one of them is physically beating up on a child, mm. all five are responsible. Yeah. I'm afraid. And then you didn't stay there. That was the awful thing that even though it, oh, God, it wasn't the, very kind or you didn't have much love, it was better than what you went to next. Is that right? Yeah. It, well, it was like being a crash test dummy, basically. for ver- So if this isn't working, we'll have to move him. So you put a 12-year-old in a children's home of... 16, 17-year-olds and the 12-year-old is going to be influenced by the 16, 17-year-old, so we better move him. So then they moved me to a family group home. What happens in a family group home? I'm the 16-year-old then. Mm. I'm the 15-year-old then. So I'm going to be accused of being older than the younger kids. Yes. So you can never fit in. You're never in the right place. I've never said that before. That absolutely fits. Wherever I was, it was wrong for me. Yeah. Everybody's trying to do the best in the care system. But it just wasn't good enough. You know, and I didn't, as a child, you don't have the right to say this isn't good enough. Mm. You are not giving me what I need. Because as a child, you don't really know what you need. You don't really know what love is. You just know when it's not there. I have to say, reading your book, you do feel it's like a case study in how to destroy a child. It's from one horror to the next and no love or stability. It is... So I was inside that thought. Yeah. They're, they're breaking me down. Did you feel that? I knew that. You sort of felt yourself disintegrating. I knew that. They are breaking me down. And by the time I was in Wood End, I was like, they've got me. Do you think now, if you'd been in London, you'd be out on county lines or in a gang? I was never a gang-orientated human. Mm. I was I was very much a one-person storm. Did you have nicknames as and well? Sunrise. My nickname as a child, as a twelve-year-old, when I went into the children's homes, was Chalky White. That's extraordinary. Chalky White. <laughs> Well, yeah. Did you mind or did it at that Loved time? <laughs> and why? Because it gave because you a sense of belonging. who doesn't want a nickname? And not only did I have a nickname, but I had a nickname which would help me 
contact people, it meant that I got the joke in before they did. Right. So I owned the narrative. My nickname's Chalky White, and I can take a joke. Everybody seemed to be so concerned about you taking a joke if you were black then. You know, <laughs> so, oh, it's Chalky, you can take a joke. It wasn't a joke, it was a test. It yeah. was like a, a kind of very Neanderthal test and very racially abusive test. Mm. Can we subjugate this human being in a social situation and will they, you know, put the chain around their neck and go along with it? Mm. And I did. Mm. And I did it because I thought, oh, I can turn this round. I can't. I couldn't. Because the moment I said to them, hey, this is what happened. I realised I was going to become an adult in a few years' time, 16, 15, 16. I was like, I don't want to get a job and be known as Chalky White. Mm. You know what I mean? I, I, I don't want that. And so... And so I asked them to stop, and that's when that's when the that's when the big emotional crash happened. Was that because you were questioning your identity? Do you think? No. No. It's because when I asked people not to not to make jokes about the colour of my skin, I saw something which scared the hell out of me. Right. So the people that were my friends, the people that were not my friends, like equally, if I said to them. Please, I've heard the jokes now. You know, let's not do this. Mm. What have we got? What have we got in our toolbox of friendship? Mm. If you don't call me Chalky. Who the bloody hell do you think you are? Right. And then comes the swear words. Then the next one's the N word. Then the next one's the C word. Yeah. And I, I swear to God. Like, it, 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 I became frightened of everything. Yeah. Because I was like, I don't, You've got know, no I, allies. I, don't, I don't know anything. Or I anyone, don't know anything, really. And mm. I don't know anyone. Mm. I don't know what they've seen. Mm. And I likened it, sorry to quote myself there, it sounds terrible, but to having dark glasses on and people saw the reflection that they wanted to see and I saw them. Right. And I, I it became that I saw people... I just didn't, I didn't know what the rules were anymore. I, 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 I then noticed people noticing me. Were they frightened of you, do you think? And what, what did you feel? What was the sense from other people? Have you read Ralph Ellison's The Invisible Man? You know, it's, it's, um, it's an incredible book. But um, I realised that I didn't have to do anything for anybody to be frightened of me. We were muggers from Manchester. We were drug dealers. We were, we were, um, uh, just think of all the negative things. We were poor. We didn't have class. We lived in lots of houses. We smelled. We tried to steal women from other white men. We tried to steal jobs. These were the sole things that I learned from the people that were around me. You know, I didn't have to do anything to fear them. They feared us. They feared me before they'd met me. And me being nice, me being chalky white, that, that became a threat mm. it's to so their amazing. idea of what I should be. So I often grew up with them saying, you're all right, it's just the other ones. So I was the insider who was suddenly on the outside. Mm. And is that how you discovered poetry? Was it a way of escape or a form of actually articulating how you felt? I think um, poetry was my way 
into family. I think that when I wrote poetry, I felt like I was um, planted on the earth in a very particular place with something that was, there's something that had been around for thousands and thousands of years. In the same way that you think of family, you know, my family's been here forever. Whatever, your granddad, your grandma, their granddad, their grandma, all the stories that come with them, it goes on and on and on forever. You, you, you are tethered, like it or not. And also, is there a permanence to the word? So there is proof well, yeah, that yeah, you've absolutely, existed. Absolutely. It's, a, it's that, almost like a photograph. Yeah, it's more than a photograph. Mm. And who gave you your first poetry? Well, I would say it was my foster father. He was an English teacher. So he, I'd say he gave me my first poetry. But I wouldn't say that's why I'm a poet. When did you write your first poem? The poem that I remember writing, I was 12, 13 in the children's home. Mm. The first poem I can remember was trying to describe what I would be like when I was 16. And how did it start? I don't know how it started, but I know what it did. It, um, remember, I've got no, no, I haven't got these poems. Mm. You know, I've got nothing. I've got nothing from the age of 18 downwards. I have now, actually, because I've got my files and I've got various other things. Is, the, is the poetry for you a way of creating something bigger? Being able to serve, I think, to a degree, poetry gives you the ability to serve and to share. I have a poem that gets shared at, like, weddings, like every every couple of weeks somebody will read it in a wedding somewhere in the world and I just think mm. which great. poem's that? it's called Invisible Kisses and it's read somewhere in the world every two weeks by somebody but do you think if you'd gone back to your mother when you were a baby and had a happy childhood growing up with your mother and siblings that you wouldn't have been such a great poet do you think in a way in the pain no, comes I don't, the poetry no, no I, I don't well, sorry, I want to rail against that. I want to say, you know, you don't need to suffer pain to be a poet. Because that would mean that when I give workshops, which I don't anymore, but which I, you know, just kick a few people, you know. So, <laughs> so, so I don't think it's a route to creativity. I do feel like you have to have, even if you ha- can't articulate it yourself, a real reason to, to, to create Mm. That's, that's like the, the, the spark to the engine. Sparks and to leave something behind. If you're not going to leave a family behind and you've had no family in front of you, is it in some way to leave your yeah. sense of yourself? Oh, yeah, and you want to do that. You want to implant that now. You want to, you know... It, yeah, they are seeds, you know, like in the pond over there, you know. If I was the multiculturalist I know that just my placing that thing in that soil the right temperature that I only I know about you know that that will grow something will grow there and that children will be happy about it and parents and lovers will come stand by it and but at the time of doing it 
that's where the magic is for me. So is it more a form of therapy for you or is it about explaining the world to other people? So I know that in my poetry, that my life deflected away from me from being the writer that I know I could have been. So I've got the rest of my life to continue that journey. But I really do, I'm sure that I am not as good a poet as I know I will be. So certain poems in my books, I think, I can see you there, Lem. That's how good you are. Could you be the poet laureate, do you think? Or do you think you'd find it too It got difficult? very close this time. I know, like I know exactly how queen? close it got to. Um, do you see yourself writing well, about the Queen or about you know, huge events? Or, you did the Olympics, so... The beauty of Caroline Duffy is that she didn't. Mm. You know, she set the rules. But could you it write... Takes, can you no, write to order? Or does it have to come from an emotional place? What's beautiful about Caroline Duffy <laughs> is that it takes somebody who is not like anybody who's come before to reset or to grow the role. Right. And that's what's really interesting mm -hmm. when we think about getting counterintuitive, getting people who don't look like us or don't act like us or from a different class or a different mm. gender or a different whatever. It, 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 that person, if they're skilled at the, what they do, which is they should be, that's why they're there, but, but gives an added benefit mm. to, the, you, to the role. And that's, that's Caroline Duffy and you, various others. So what did you feel when you found your real name and when you were given the birth certificate and when you found that your mother had tried to get you back? Well, remember, I always thought that they did not know what they were doing with me. Yeah. The only evidence I'd had is that they put me into the terrible foster parents who then put me into a series of children's homes. I left care not knowing anyone who knew me longer than a year. Mm. And so I, know, I knew that something was wrong. I just didn't have evidence. So you felt justified? When they gave me my mm. birth certificate and they said, your name is Lem Sisse on your birth certificate, when they gave me letters pleading for me back, I was like, there's something wrong. You mm. did something to me. Mm. And I don't know what it is. And I think I'm going to need to find out. With an overwhelming desire to see your mother, then. It must be your That as well. Mm. Never mind all of this stuff. Never mind having to be a detective to your own life story. At 18, when everybody else is going out to go to university, to get away from their own dysfunctional families, to moan about their families and get drunk, to, you know, to actually become their own family. But I knew that that was going to happen, but I couldn't tell them that at the time. <laughs> um, I, my job was to find my mum, mm. find my family. And Lem means why, doesn't it? means the question why. And believe me, in Ethiopia, you don't call your children Lem. You don't call your children why. It's an unusual name so to give a child. So why do you think she called you that? It's a good question. She also knew that nobody would understand what that name meant. My mother went back to Ethiopia in 68 because her father was dying she stayed in touch with the social worker here. She pleaded for me back. Then she married the vice minister to finance under the emperor, Haile Selassie. Did she ever tell him she'd had a child? Yes. 
I met him in 1995 for a BBC documentary called Internal Flight. So what was it like when you met your mother for the first time? So she had to flee Ethiopia in 1974 when the emperor was overthrown by the Derg, who were kind of Stalinist um, uh, administration, killed the emperor, killed uh, a lot of the ministers. Fortunately, this minister wasn't killed, but she had to flee the country. So with the United Nations, working for the United Nations. Um it was uh, it was wonderful. Mm. I hugged her at the door of her um, her house. She had lemon trees, lemon branch, lemon bushes, and she had coconut tree in there, and she had grapefruits growing there. And it was like it's like any other. It was a very beautiful home. Did, was she like you expected? Was it? Did it live up to your well, dreams? Well, she was exactly 21 years of age, 21 years younger than me, because I was 21 mm. when I found her. Mm. So she'd have been 42, which... So I hugged her at the, at the door, and as we walked up the pathway to the house, she said, can we not talk about this? I've got a visitor staying over. Right. So within a minute of meeting her, I couldn't talk to her. And that was difficult. And you feel like you're being sidelined. That was, again, it's down to the practical nature of family and difficulty and things are not how you want them to be. Mm. I come back to her, I come back to her as the big I am almost, Mm. you know, tell me about how I was conceived. What child says that to their parents? Their first words to them. Mm. So I'm probably a... I'm probably a reminder of the worst memory that she's ever had. That's the loss of her child. But she must be desperate to have seen you, wasn't she? Yes. But also overwhelmed. Life is hard at times. People go through wars and have to reconcile the fact that they didn't help a member of family who could have been helped. Mm. How do you live with that when you're somewhere better? How does a mother live with the fact that she tried her best and it still wasn't good enough? And she's had to get on. She's had three other children of her own in very quick Mm. concession. Her husband jails, her father's died. She had to flee the country. The people of her own class who talk may not like her because she fled. She may feel guilt upon guilt upon guilt upon guilt. And you're destabilising the family equilibrium Mm. as well. You're coming in as an outsider almost, aren't you? Her children are at international schools and they're all going to come home in the next three days. But that must be so extraordinary to have to go to what you think is your real family and realise that yet again that you are the outsider within a family, the person who might destabilise everyone. When I met my mum, I realised that it wasn't my story, it was hers. This isn't about me. This isn't about anything that I've lost. She's lost a lot more than I've lost. Did it give you a sense of completion or did you feel... Oh my God, come on. There is no completion in family. 
There is no completion. The idea of completion is the scariest thing that most families can want. Mm. Completion for a family is dying. You what know? about your father? Where was he? My father, talking of dying, <laughs> died in a plane crash in 1974. So did you never meet him? I made a documentary about him in 1995 where he passed on. But I went to visit the plane in the Simeon Mountains in Ethiopia. It's amazing. Do you know anything about his family then? Oh, yeah. I've met my... I've now got brothers and sisters on my father's side, brothers and sisters on my mother's side. Um, uh, yeah. It so, must be like putting a jigsaw puzzle together, but the picture's quite confused. Yeah, it's a really good uh, example of what it feels like. You put this entire jigsaw together and it's a mirror it's you that you need to deal with nobody's going to help you no picture of the family is going to make everything okay about what happened only you can Mm. and isn't that incredible that that as crazy as your story is you know all of the all of the jigsaw putting together leaves you with you Mm. does that make you feel stronger Mm. it's just beautiful mm. to realize that that above all you have to love yourself mm. we are often putting jigsaws together trying to find the picture where we are loved in the way we wanted to be loved and that's that picture will never emerge you almost describe um, writing a poem a bit like finding the shape of the sculpture in a stone, don't you? Yes. How did, can you just explain that, how it yeah. works in words? Yeah. It's almost like the poem is all, all in there and it is our job first to discover... I mean, that in there is a very big thing to say, but there is a massive language, landscape and it's all made of words and you need to find the part of that landscape where there's a particular word and dig underneath that. All of that is just a little flag. That's all it is. Dig underneath that, keep digging and see what you find. And you may find a set of words that have been waiting there for you to discover that are the poem, but you're going to have to do a lot of digging. And you actually, some of the time, you have actually dug words into real stone, haven't you? I have, yeah. All around the country and abroad, there are stones with your... Yep. Words yeah, in them. How yeah. does that make you feel? Very proud, yeah. I, I have, in, in being invisible, I have definitely made a life of one who shall be seen. Mm. And do you see yourself as a role model then, particularly now with the Black Lives Matter? Is it important to have people who are seen? I think it's important to have people banging down doors and etc. Um, there are... There are lots of people doing that now, and that's great. I think there always have been, to be honest. I just think now the beauty of the Black Lives Matter is that it's not just black people. Mm-hmm. Thank God. God, we spent a long time trying to get there. So is the toppling of statues a good thing, or is that a distraction? And actually the real scandal is that there are so many black children in care, black children getting excluded. Black children the, being picked up by the police. Picked up by the police, and actually that's should should the focus be more on practical solutions? I'd love to look at history and how these movements occur because a certain amount of dissent does happen. Rule breaking. 
Just around the corner from where we're speaking now is the Match Girls factory. They, the reason the Match Girls went on strike in the TUC is there's a plaque that says it was the first union strike, first ever union walkout strike. The reason they went on strike is because they were told that they had to pay a percentage of their weekly uh, payment for a statue of Gladstone outside of the uh, Match Girls factory. I think it was Gladstone or their boss. I think it was Gladstone. So every year now, and it was because of feminists that helped with this march, early feminists, they throw things at the uh, paint at the statue in East London. It's there to this day. So dissent is part of mass movement, I'm afraid. What do you think you could do with the um, care system now? I mean, being through it, is there one thing? I mean, obviously... Love is a huge point. Is that sort of you need to hug people, you need to tell them personally that you love them, not just the, the children or an institution. And with you need love, to be less afraid. With love comes the actions of love. So you may want your child to have the best education, but you may want them to be in a place where they have well-being and they're looked at well. If you have the money, you will pay for that. You may do, you may not. I would. Um, uh, it's that kind of attention that I want the child in care to get. Mm. And actually, we have the resources to be able to do that as a government. I know, I know. It'd be very easy to think, well, can we afford it? And I've noticed that, that actually it's very easy to... For- we, we suddenly all become really good financiers when we dis- may disagree with something. So, well, let's just think about how can we make that happen? But it's always the bottom of the list of priorities, isn't it? That's the problem. So my job in life is to get us as the public mm. to realise that if child in care, a child of the state, um, that we should judge how well our government is doing by how it treats its child. To me, the government is doing actually quite an incredible job when it comes down to kids in care. Uh, and that's this government and the cross-party all-parliamentary group has done some incredible work in getting children in care to be um, uh, looked, uh, considered in all different departments. Mm. Um, education, housing, etc., etc. Universities are now looking at children in care, trying to get them to try to look after them, give them support while they're there. My university is doing that, the University of Manchester, support services, scholarships, etc. What would you say to your 12-year-old self if you were now giving advice to the young Norman? To my 12-year-old self, I'd say, stop worrying, man. It's all going to work out okay. <laughs> what about when you were 17? Because that must have been the lowest point. Stop smoking it? weed. <laughs> <laughs> and what about to yourself as a baby? I'd say, God, you're gorgeous. <laughs> you just got to know that for yourself. Stop giving away your power to everybody else. Stop trying to ingratiate yourself to everybody else. You love people. That's a good thing. It doesn't matter if they don't love you back. And what about your foster mother? What would you say to her now? Oh, I'd say to her, this kid is going to be a really great asset for your family, okay? 
So just stick through this. It's called adolescence. It's what normal kids do. Have you forgiven her? Fully. And what about your mother, as she gave you away age 21? To my, to my birth mother, mm. and looking back at all the mothers and fathers in the family, I'd say to them, you know, I'd say to my foster mother, my foster father, I'd say it wasn't your fault, you know, and you're not to blame, and we're okay. You've been listening to What I Wish I'd Known in association with Speakers for Schools, the youth social mobility charity that provides inspirational talks and work experience opportunities with Rachel Sylvester and Alice Thompson and our guest on this episode, Lem Sisse. The series producer is Anya Pierce. If you enjoyed what you heard, why not pick up a copy of our book, What I Wish I'd Known When I Was Young? Or you can follow the podcast so you never miss an episode. And of course, you can listen back to all our previous episodes on the Free Times Radio app or download them from wherever else you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Thank you.